0: Let us turn to the Word of God and feed from it. Today, it's taken from chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. This is the Word of the Lord, and it is eternally true. First Corinthians 4, verses 1 to 5. Let a man regard us in this manner, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found Trustworthy. But to me, it's a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself, for I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. This is the word of the Lord. Now, we have spent quite a bit of time studying the nature of the conflict in the Corinthian church. There's battle lines that have been drawn in this church. They're divided. They're fighting amongst themselves. And the way they're fighting is by lining themselves up under certain officers of the church, under the Apostle Peter, the Apostle Paul, under Apollos, and then some saying, I'm of Christ. But undoubtedly, there are other men that aren't mentioned, maybe even in the women. uh, They lined up by the wives of certain leaders or by prominent women. Maybe there was an older single woman like Henrietta Mears at Hollywood Press um, who had a tremendous influence in the church. And people would say, I'm of Henrietta Mears. And so the church is divided, and we all know what it's like to have a divided church because we all know what it's like to eat at a divided table. I'm sure everybody here can remember a time when there was a battle going on in your family, and then you had the inconvenience of dinner. And I hope all of you are growing up in homes where you actually do still have a meal a day together, whether it's the breakfast or lunch or dinner. But you can remember times where at dinner time there had been a great tension between a couple of people in the home. And then you sit down and say, all right, let's pray. Or if your home wasn't a Christian one, you sit down and you say, okay, let's eat. And you pick up your fork and there's nothing in you that wants to eat. Because why? Well, because there's a division in the family and eating food in the middle of fighting is nasty. I've had meals. I'm sure you've had them where, you know, you've been asked to go out to lunch and it's with somebody that you're in conflict with. And it's time to order and you just don't order (laughs) because, you know, I guess we have to be at a restaurant because there's no other place to eat. But just bring me coffee, bring me water. Um, well, here's this church and it's the household of God and people were supposed to come to worship and feed. That's what you're doing. You're feeding on the word of God. They're to come to the words table and eat. There's to be sweet fellowship, prayer, praise, feeding on the word, but it's divided. And so you sit down in the pew, you sit down in the chair and you think, you know, Tom sat in John's chair. And a lot of the fights in churches are about things that trivial. Somebody who's new comes in and sits up front in Bertha's seat. And Bertha burns with resentment because that's been where she's sat for 30 years. One of the most frequent causes of divisions in American churches is the flags, the United States flag and the Christian flag. Which side should the U.S. flag go and which side should the Christian flag go? And the answer is, get them both out of the church. Certainly, the American flag. It has no place in a church of Jesus Christ. And you go, how could you say that? And I say, because our allegiance is to the kingdom of God. It's not to America. We love America. She's our homeland. America has no place when it comes to the church of Jesus Christ. And so I had a church in Wisconsin, and they booted a minister... 30 years before I came, they booted him because he one Sunday changed which side the American flag was on and which side the Christian flag was on. And if you go back in the records of churches, you'll find that all across our country are churches that have divided over which side the American flag is on. And of course, you know the truth. The truth is that almost always the pastor would say the Christian flag should have precedence and almost always the congregation would say, no, the American flag should have precedence. And the funny thing is that nobody knows which has precedence. And so the argument's completely stupid, because if you ask people which side has precedence, there are as many opinions as as you want on that. Now, I'm going to tell you the truth. Here's the truth. If a flag is on the level of the speaker, the flag that takes precedence is the flag to the speaker's right. If the flag is on the level of the congregation, the flag that has precedence is the flag to your right. (laughs) And so you'll go into a church and you'll go into a church and you'll see that the American flag is on the platform to the speaker's left. All right. And you'll tell people, you know, you're subordinating the American flag to the Christian flag. And they'll go, no, we're not. It's on our right. You know, and it's a stupid. Get the flags out of the church. We have enough good things to fight about without fighting about stupid things. Right? So you come to the dinner table and your father and mother are fighting, brother and sister are fighting, and you just don't want to eat. You come into the house of God. They're lining up. I'm Paul. I'm Apollos. I'm Cephas. I'm Jesus. And nobody wants to eat. And so Paul is hammering home the necessity of peace in the church. And because the division is coming behind certain leaders, certain officers, it's of the nature of the division to value the office of pastor and apostle too highly and to value it too lowly to think too much of Paul and Apollos and Cephas, to think too little of them. Because any battle like this, we always fall on one side and the other, and we never walk down the middle. Never. And so in these churches, you'll notice at one moment, Paul is lifting up the calling, and in another moment, he's, he, he's denigrating it, depreciating it, putting it down. And so if we look at our text this morning, here we are again, working on the unity and peace the eat ability of the church gathered together. The ability to eat and, and take nourishment instead of getting acid reflux. All right? And at the center of it is let a man regard us. And, and you would think, oh man, come on, Paul, let's get on to something else. You know, why is it always about you? Let a man regard us. All right? But it's the text of Scripture. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ. And stewards of the mysteries of God. Servants of Christ. So here's how you're to think of us. You're to think of us as servants of Christ. Now, does that lower or does that raise the position of the minister of the word and sacrament? Does it lower or raise it? Well, the first thing lowers him, and the second thing raises him. What's the first thing? Well, the first thing is servants of Christ. You know that I've told you that in Greek, the word for deacon is diakonos, and it means servant. It's somebody who's given a trust that he's supposed to maintain. So you would think this word here, servant, is the same word for deacon, but it's not. This is a word that has its origin in the lower level of rowers in a Roman galley. And so it was, the whole essence of the word is subordination. You know that word that we all love? Subordinate. Do you ever refer to yourself as a subordinate? Do you ever mark yourself as a subordinate? Do you ever walk into your home and say, um, Yes, ma'am, and yes, sir. And if you're inclined to ever do that, it's likely it's with your parents because that's the least obnoxious authority in our lives is our parents. It should be. It should be the most intimate. It should be the one place, as Chesterton says, where authority can be perfectly crafted in application to the personality of the subordinate. You know, the court can't stop and ask what your personality type is. But at home, your mother can think about you when she makes rules and disciplines you. And so if there's any place where you should be willing and embrace, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, it should be the home. Right? Even more than the classroom. There's, Germans are very fixated on authority. Proper order. And so I always try to refer to Jürgen von Hagen in the proper order of his name, which is, hair, professor, doctor, mister, pastor, or no, pastor, Herr professor, mister, doctor. And, and I always try to get it right, but I never know how to get it right with Jürgen, And he's here today. He just showed up. He's right here. And, and so tell him what the right way is of signing that I am your subordinate. How do I do that? What title do I give you? What would I say? Give me the order. Well, aren't you a pastor? Hair, pastor, professor, doctor. So this morning I've come up with a new one. Shortened, let's call him big hair. (laughs) He says there's not much left. All right. So you think about the ways that we indicate that we are subordinates. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. No, sir. No, ma'am. And here the Apostle Paul is saying, let us, let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ. So we're to think of the Apostle Paul as being a subordinate of Christ. All right. It's interesting here that instead of using the, the uh, Greek article for a man, it uses anthropos, and so the commentators all talk about how, in Greek usage, that's unusual, but in uh, in Hebrew, it would be normal. Well, you all know what anthropos means, right? It's the sort of and sort of not generic word for man, whereas to, to refer to it just as him, let him regard us in this manner, which is what they're saying in Greek, let any man. Isn't it interesting that in, Scripture is actually written in words, <laughs> in case you didn't know. It's not written in concepts. And isn't it interesting that the commentators all discuss the significance of Anthropos instead of inna? Now, why does it matter? Well, it matters because the word used to refer to the people in the church is a man. It's a word that can't have eviscerated from it masculine signatures instead of just using the article. And all the commentators talk about this when they write comments. And then today... If we were translating it, what would we translate it as? Most of the evangelical publishers would do violence to the word of God today by translating it, let a person regard us. And then the commentators all talk about the difference between inna and anthropos. The Bible's in words, people. Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic words. And if we honor the plenary verbal of inspiration of Scripture then we're fixated on words, and we want the words the Holy Spirit chose to come to us. And trust me, when you as a woman get the word man instead of a person, you as a woman are not being violated, but you're being taught and fed. And so if I, in order to twist Scripture, because I'm worried about feminists, if I twist Scripture... Am I being a servant of Christ and a steward of the mysteries of God? Am I concerned about being found trustworthy? Or is it a very large thing that I'm examined by you and by human courts? And this is what's going on all across evangelicalism today, is that everybody's playing with the word of God because they're more concerned about what people think of them than God. And because they don't really give a rip whether or not God finds them trustworthy, what they want to do is to have a big church and to have a big salary and to be adulated by people. And so we twist scripture. The word is anthropos. It's not in it. And we go ahead and translate it, let a person regard us, because after all, anthropos includes women, and women today don't understand anthropos includes them. And so, what we do is take it back to the very article that was rejected by the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. (laughs) And if you tell me you don't understand what I'm talking about, you're a liar. You know exactly what I'm talking about. All our language has changed to keep from offending feminists. You didn't change it to keep from offending my wife, you didn't change it to keep from offending my daughters. My granddaughters, two of them now, or no, three. I got three now. It's the feminists. But hey, let's get off that. Just preach the word, Tim. Well, I thought I was. (laughs) I mean, isn't that the word? Oh, come on, Tim. There's more in the text than that. All right, okay, all right. After all, I don't want you to dislike me. And I am tall and and adipose. And I have gray hair. (laughs) Why can't they find a woman to preach here? I love you. Love you, love you, love you. I'm glad you were not silent. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ. So servants is subordination. It's under, it's low. It's submitting. And then of Christ. Christ. So if I'm a subordinate of someone, it makes a whole lot of difference who I'm a subordinate of, doesn't it? If I'm a subordinate of the trash man, I smell. And I'm not high in the estimation of men. And that includes you women. But if I'm a subordinate of Jesus Christ, then what that means is that I have authority over you. Because he has made me a steward of his mysteries. And so on the one hand, Paul puts himself down and then he lifts himself up right there. And this is the back and forth of scripture. As servants of Christ and because we're servants of Christ, we have been made stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, what's the word stewards? Well, it's the word that we get economists from. It comes from the Greek word for home. And so think of how often Scripture demonstrates that the church is the household of God. And so the steward of the mysteries of God is the steward of the household. He's the economist of the mysteries of God. Now, when we think economists, all we think of is money. Macroeconomists, microeconomists, cosmic economists, voodoo economists, you know, and it's all money. But long before it had to do with money, it had to do with household. And before it had to do with household, it had to do with the Garden of Eden. God made Adam the steward of his creation. This is why we're not vegans, because God placed us above his creation, including the animals. He gave us the animals to eat. And so we're stewards of creation. We are stewards of the children and the wife that God gives us. As husbands, we are heads over our households and over our wives. And now, those who are servants of Christ, the apostles and the um, pastors, the ministers of the word and sacrament, are stewards of the mysteries of God. Stewards, economists of the mysteries of God. We are the household stewards of the treasuries of heaven, the mysteries of God. Now, what are the mysteries of God? Well, the doctor of the medieval Roman Catholic Church, Aquinas, says it's the sacraments. Is it the sacraments? Well, yeah. It is the sacraments. They're wonderful gifts. Did you read... In the Romans text this morning, the Apostle Paul saying that in the Old Testament, circumcision was a sign and seal of the covenant of grace. Baptism is a sign and seal of the covenant of grace. Both spiritual administrations that mark the people of God. Did you read that? This is a precious thing to have a physical mark, right? Baptism is a beautiful gift to us, right? We can come forward and by faith be marked with the covenant sign. The Lord's Supper is a precious gift where we eat and drink spiritually the body and the blood of Jesus Christ that washes us from sin. God is pleased to use physical things and to accomplish spiritual graces through them. Right? So, of course, part of the mysteries of God are the sacraments. But is that what the Apostle Paul is speaking of here? It's included. But if what he meant were the sacraments, and that's what a preacher, a pastor, a minister was about, then why would he have said in the first chapter of First Corinthians, verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Preaching the gospel comes before the sacraments. It comes before them in Acts 2 where it says they were devoted to the teaching of the apostles and then the breaking of bread, fellowship, and prayer. The only possible unity of the people of God is to stand in God's truth. If there is no doctrinal unity, there is no unity at the table if you have bastard children trying to sit at the table and crowd out your own flesh and blood, do you let them do it? Do you let anybody come into your home and sit at the table and remove your baby from the high chair? Does it matter in a home whether or not that child belongs to you or somebody else? In the same way, Doctrine is the foundation of the church. And only those who submit to the truths of God's word and words, only they are allowed to the Lord's sacraments. They pass through the doctrine, the truth, the word. They pass through Jesus Christ, who is both fully God and fully man. They must come through doctrine to come to the sacrament. So, yes, the sacraments are included. But at the heart is the doctrine of Scripture. Okay? And so when he says, stewards of the mysteries of God, we start with the mysteries that were not revealed in the Old Testament but have been revealed now. In Ephesians chapter 3, we read this beginning with verse 4. By referring to this... When you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, all right, what are the mysteries? To be specific... "...that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me, according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. To preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ." Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God, of the treasuries, the unfathomable riches of Jesus Christ. Now, what are those riches of Jesus Christ? Well, the riches of Jesus Christ are that you're dead in your trespasses and sins. You are an enemy of God, and therefore, you soon will face God's wrath and judgment. That's who you are. It's not who Ben Crum is. That's who you are. There is no hope for you. There's no clean thing in you. Even your best acts are corrupt. It's not that you never do anything good, but it's that the best, most perfect offering you've ever made to God has still been corrupted by the fall. Your motives when you do good things are bad. All right. But God, in his mercy, sent his son to turn aside his wrath against you. And if you embrace his son by faith, not by going to daily mass, not by being baptized, not by having devotions every day, if you embrace him by faith, his wrath is turned aside from you, not because you have devotions every day or go to daily mass, but because you have come under the blood of his son and been washed by the blood of his son. That's the mystery of Jesus Christ, the mystery of the gospel. And that's what ministers, pastors, shepherds, apostles, prophets, that's what we are delegated the task of preaching and teaching. That's what we're to do. Now, the minute I say that, you think, yeah, Here to preach the gospel, the good news. And you see, there are a whole bunch of seats open here that I told you would be open in a few weeks. Remember that? Remember I said they'll be gone? What is the problem here? Well, the problem here is that God's no is said as well as his yes. That's the problem. And so you remember when I described the gospel, I started out by saying who you are, who I am, right? And then I said who Jesus is and what God has given to us in Jesus. And from the very beginning till today, it is the habit of those who have been made servants of Christ and steward of the mysteries of God to be good stewards on the yes and terrible stewards on the no. Because people come to church wanting to be uplifted, and encouraged. They just want to be encouraged. And so the way you encourage people is by giving them God's yes without giving them God's no. As Luther says, by giving them faith without repentance, forgiveness without confession, by giving them grace without the law. But as I say so often, as scripture says so often, how on earth does any man come to grace who has not met his sin? How can God be good news to us if we have not met our wickedness? Not our dads. That's a no-brainer. That's easy. Not our mothers. That's harder, but we can even see that. Not our professors. That's pretty simple. (laughs) Not our pastors. Every one of our pastors has feet of clay, is a despicable man. Nevertheless, a, a steward. Of Christ, all right? Our wife, our husband, our son, our daughter, our brother, our sister, the policeman, the president, the Supreme Court. Everywhere we go, we're under authority, and we pick that authority apart and show how it's completely defective. And every authority we pick apart allows us to build ourselves up in our estimation, right? Wherever I turn in your life, I can show your sin. If you come into my office to talk to me, you will typically come in because you have a burden of sin. That's usually what draws people into a pastor's office, is their conscience. And typically, if a pastor does his job right, he will open up to you the fact that you don't understand the half of your sin. About the time you think you're accurately summing up what your problems are, he'll, he'll like jump on. He'll say, but you haven't begun to repent because look at how your sin has been made the door of other men's sin. You remember that John Donne, a hymn to God, our Father? Wilt thou forgive that sin which I have done a score? And when thou hast done, thou hast not done, for I have more. I have a sin which I have made the door of other people's sin. In other words, I've let other people into my sin. And you come to confess your sin and the burden it is. And then the pastor will sit there and say, now, as a father, are you confessing that sin. Do you see how that sin has corrupted your wife? Corrupted your marriage. You see how that sin has corrupted your children? And then the pastor will meet with your children. And one day soon, he will be explaining how his father's sin has led him into sin. And now he is leading his sons and daughters into sin. The same sin. The mysteries of Christ include the law of God. They include God's no, they include repentance, they include confession. And nobody, no matter what they say, knows the grace of Jesus Christ, who has not despaired at his own sinfulness. And so if you go to churches where they just, I have to watch my language, I wish I could say it the way you'd say it, You know, but you go to churches where they flatter you, but nobody ever says flatter you anymore. You know what you say. All right. What good is it? Is that pastor a steward of the mysteries of Christ? No, because all he does is give you God's good news. He announces God's good news to you. And he doesn't announce your sin to you. Right? And that's horrible. As a father, what do I pray for my children at night? What I pray is that God will open their eyes to their sin and teach them to hate it. And that he will open their eyes to their Savior and teach them to love him. And isn't that the mysteries of Jesus Christ? How do you have a mystery where there's no conflict and no question? And how do you have a question where there's no sin? (laughs) What's Jesus' solution to? Well, your life can be better. Better than what? Well, better than John Gacy. I mean, for heaven's sakes. Better than Jeffrey Dahmer. Better than Paris Hilton. Better than Liberace. Better than... Better than that child perverter who leads the Metropolitan Opera. Forget those people. They're not your problem. Your problem is yourself. Your problem is your heart. Not mine, but yours. And so we have all these kids that come in at the beginning of the year and they sat under people that suck up to them from the pulpit. And all of a sudden, their heart is exposed and they begin to tremble and they think, to hell with that and they go someplace else. And what Luther said is that it's always the habit of preachers to preach much forgiveness and no repentance. This is what Luther said. And he said, so the people are rendered without compunction of conscience. They have no ability of feeling their conscience anymore. And he says, this is an error worse than all those hitherto prevailing. And what he means is the Roman Catholic Church. This is worse than the Roman Catholic Church because at least Roman Catholics will fear and tremble before God. Evangelicals have lost the ability to fear God today. And so grace is meaningless. So we've rejected doctrine, we've rejected sin, we've rejected depravity, we've rejected the fall. And we talk grace, 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 And Roman Catholics tremble before a holy God. And evangelicals have learned that we're saved justification by faith alone. We don't have to do all that stuff. And then we blame shift. We don't want to be under convicting preaching. And so we accuse the pastor of being an unfaithful steward of the mysteries of Christ. Because we can't face the depravity of our hearts. And so we say that the pastor is dyspeptic. That the pastor woke up on the wrong side of the bed this morning. That the pastor has father issues. That the pastor is aggressive. He's dogmatic. He's patriarchal. He's fixated on sex. Never mind the fact that everywhere else you go in town here, it's fixated on sex. But for heaven's sakes, don't bring it into church and don't preach about it. Just let us have it. (laughs) I mean, don't you realize that yesterday I was at UW-Madison as a student? (laughs) And Madison has perfected what you only wish you had. And before that, we lived in Boulder. Eh? These are places of very sophisticated sin. And so Paul says this. He says, let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of, this, of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. So what matters What matters is not what you think of me. Now, I'm not saying that it's not the calling of the congregation to judge the preaching of the word. It is your calling to judge my preaching. But not to judge it the way you judge it. Because the way you always judge it is by your um, barometer of feelings. But you're to judge it by doctrine. Because remember what it says about the Bereans. In Acts, it says that the Bereans were more noble-minded because they went home and opened the Bible and they judged the preaching and the teaching that they had just heard by the word of God. But you don't judge me by the word of God. You judge me by your feelings. If you leave church feeling good, it was a good sermon. If you leave church feeling bad, it was a bad sermon. I don't care how you feel. I mean, you know, Alyssa, you're really sweet. But I really don't care how you feel. Chelsea. I've been working on Chelsea's name for a year. (laughs) Got it right again. Three times today. Now, is this true that I don't care how you feel? No, it's not true. I feel your pain. Trust me. I can go through the congregation, I look at your eyes, and I know what you're feeling. I should know that just the way a farmer, when he goes through the milk parlor, should know whether there's mastitis in the udder. That's a good farmer. Because he knows that the cow needs antibiotics. So I do feel your pain. I feel your joy. I do really care about your feelings. But people... What's the problem of every mother in a house? The problem of a mother in a house is that she can't discipline her feelings by truth. That's the problem innate to womanhood. And the problem of every father is that he can't discipline truth by his feelings. That's the problem of every father. Now you say, well, my dad wasn't like that. My mother weren't like that. And I say, don't bother me with the particulars. Deal with the generality. Generally, God has made women to nurse babies and to nurse them when they're screaming, to nurse them when they're biting, to nurse them, nurse them, nurse them. And generally, God has given fathers to be authorities. And authorities bring order and nurses bring nurturing. Can, can we see this? Is this okay? Can I talk about these things publicly? <laughs> okay. Okay. And so the discipline of the father is for the mother to force him to feel the pain. And the discipline of the father is to force the mother to feel the truth. And G.K. Chesterton says that it will be a quarrel because the sexes are not the same. He says the point is to keep it a lover's quarrel. And so every good pastor is not just a father ruling, but he's a nursing mother to the flock. And so in the stewards, servants of Christ, stewards of the mysteries of God, you want them to feel your feelings, your pain. You want them to cry with you. You want them to rejoice with you, to laugh with you. But you don't want the word of God twisted so that your feelings are good. Because then he's not a steward of the mysteries of Christ, but he's a steward of your feelings. And that's the worst thing that can happen to you as an eternal and an immortal soul. Is that you are as oppressed by your feelings as every other person in the Western world today. And especially pomo dudes. All pomo dudes are as emoting creatures. They're incapable of truth. They haven't had a father who ever disciplined them by truth. They haven't had a father who ever disciplined his wife by truth. They haven't had a father who has stood in the midst of everybody attacking him in the home. And so when they come in church, they expect that the nursing father up front is going to subjugate truth to the feelings of the flock. And that means grace and no law. That means forgiveness and no repentance. That means God's yes and never God's no. And he, that man, is not a trustworthy steward. He is not a servant of Christ. He is not a steward of the mysteries of God. But rather, he's spending his life thinking about being examined by his congregation and by human courts. And he examines himself by his popularity polling in the congregation. And that's, that's how he sees himself. If the women and the children like him, he's content. So you go into Protestant and Roman Catholic churches today, and what you will find over and over and over again is that the entire church apparatus is run by women, not by men, by women. And that there is a figurehead man who milks the women. While the husbands dutifully follow their wives in and out of church. That's how Mike Bowles came for a while. He didn't want to be here. As soon as the service was over, he was out in his truck chewing tobacco. Many of you grew up in homes like that. And it's really a nice way to grow up. Because mothers are so much more benevolent and gracious in their administration, generally. I mean, women can be fickle. But if you want grace, let's have women. I mean, their voice is graceful, their figure is graceful, their, everything about them is graceful. Melephilous voices. Well, actually, no, that's a man. It's a baritone. What happens when Mike comes alive spiritually? Lisa gets mad. And all of a sudden, there's a hint of order. And then the hint becomes a reality. And then Lisa follows Mike into church. And Lisa leaves when Mike leaves. Do you understand this? Because all of a sudden... God's truth, the fatherhood in the home, the husband over the wife, the officers of Christ's church, the specific words of scripture, the law of God, the holiness of God, the justice of God, they've all come home in the man coming home. And it's not that the man is rendered insensitive and incapable of feelings, that he doesn't cry. It's not that the man does not feel the pain of his children. But it's that daddy's home. And then, finally, all you Pomo people completely, completely in bondage to your feelings. Discover doctrine. You discover that as my mother, who was a very masculine woman and still is, and I praise God for that, that's what I needed, said to me over and over in high school, Tim, forget about your feelings. You can't trust your feelings. And she directed me to the word of God and to truth. I read last night a profile of the organization called the International Foundation, otherwise known as the Fellowship, the Doug co-group that works with all the muckety-mucks in Washington, D.C.? You've heard of them? We have a missionary couple, the weeks, who work with them. And I found out that the fellowship who worked with Colson, who've, who've worked with all of the main senators and congressmen, all the leaders of African countries, all the presidents, they're the ones that do the prayer breakfast. All right? I found out that they all intentionally, completely, that Doug Co rejects the word of God just rejects the word of God completely. He rejects teaching hell and judgment. He says that there's no need for people who are Jews and for people who are Muslims to come to Christ. He's against the exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's against denominations because denominations divide. His whole thing is having prayer meetings. But what God is he praying to? He won't stand on the Trinity And so what happens? Well, they have all these men and women that get together and pray. Who do they pray to? Is it a Trinitarian God or is it Allah? Who are they praying to? But daddy's not home. And all that's important in a postmodern world is that your feelings are ministered to. So you go into a prayer meeting and there's muckety mucks who are on their knees and this must be of God. And you, ha- you can't argue against it because you're Pomo. And if you emote... You exist. An unemoted life does not exist. You know, and you all listen to emo? And you're completely in bondage to your own selfish desires, to your own feelings, to your own need for more narcissistic ministry. And so if I forget your name, you're devastated. But listen, God knows your name. God knows your heart. And what you want is you want those servants of Christ to be faithful stewards of the mysteries of God. You want them to be found trustworthy. You want them to be found trustworthy. You want me to be trustworthy. That's what you want from me. Do you know what's true of the church, CGS, from the very beginning? The truth about this church is that from the very beginning, we have always had, now it's not true anymore, but we've always had more men than women. I don't think you can find another church in the country that for years has had more men than women. Typically, churches are about 43% men, and it's going down every year. Why? Why? Well, because we believe that an ordered marriage has a faithful steward of God leading. We believe that an ordered home has fathers and mothers faithful stewards of God to their children. We believe an ordered church has faithful men as elders and pastors and faithful women as Titus 2 women. We believe that to be found trustworthy requires us to give you God's no as well as his yes. And you know what's true about men? What's true about men is that unless they see the battle, they don't trust it. Even emo men, even pomo men, they have this sneaking suspicion that there should be something approximating The gridiron at the football field in church. That they should see something approximating courage on the part of their officers in the church. Something approximating danger. Because they know what goes through their mind when they walk on the campus. And they know women are not the answer to that. And so here's the deal, guys. Today, in America, we fight just as much over who will be above us and who will be below us in the church as the Corinthians ever did. But it's not the same kind of fight. And I know that, uh, (laughs) I know, I'll be done by 1230, promise. I know that you think that Protestants are the ones that have it right when it comes to having a proper estimation of the officers of Christ's church, because we're not Roman Catholics. So if the threat to the church is that you'll have too high a view of the leaders of the church, that's Roman Catholic. And evangelicals are Protestants, and so we don't have too high a view of our pastors, Right? Roman Catholics have Pope, Cardinal, Archbishop, Bishop, hierarchy, and we're Protestant. And so we've avoided that error, right? Wrong. We're always playing the shell game. You know, the card, and you hide the cards, and where's the queen of spades, right? Right? And the way we Protestants handle it is instead of it being popes and cardinals and archbishops and bishops, it's John Piper, it's Tim Keller, it's Mark Driscoll, it's Campus Crusade versus InterVarsity versus Navigators. It's it's an orgy. It's C.J. Mahaney. It's an orgy of popes and cardinals and archbishops and, 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 and bishops. But the hierarchy is is handled by book sales and royalties and numbers that you run in church on Sunday morning and who gets asked to what conference and who's part of Together for the Gospel and and who knows whom. And so what we've done is we've taken a a sort of pseudo-democratic hierarchy and replaced the Roman Catholic honest hierarchy with a dishonest one. And we're every bit as much given to lifting up this leader. And by this leader getting up above us, we we are lifted up. We're just as much into that as the Roman Catholics ever were and are. We're all about personality. If you don't believe me, open up World Magazine and look at all the pictures in it. We have icons of our leaders everywhere. And they don't wear stoles and, and dresses. They wear business suits or they wear black turtlenecks like Steve Jobs your even choice of a computer is between dell and apple and and if you're pomo and emo it's it's apple and if you're a business type it's dell and then we go into the church and since we're evangelicals we're completely uh enthralled by book sales and and budgets and royalties and podcasts. And if we're Roman Catholic, we're completely enthralled when the Pope comes and, and, leads a mass at soldier field. And what Paul says is what Paul says, we are servants and not servants of you. I'm not here to stroke you where you itch. I'm not here to tickle your ears. We are servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. And those mysteries are not the sacraments. They are the preaching of the word. And only when the doctrine is correct can you have the sacraments administered correctly. And what is required of a steward is that he be found faithful, that one be found faithful. And so, people, listen, sorry to tell it to you, but it's, to me, a very small thing that I may be examined by you. Or by any human court, it's actually uh, uh, man day rather than human court. In other words, the day of the Lord, the day of man. I don't care whether a man day examines me. I'm waiting for the day of the Lord, okay? In fact, I don't even examine myself. Why don't I examine myself? The reason is my self-critical capacity is very perverse. And I'm better than many of you at it, and I don't have any hope that I have an accurate judgment of my own sin. All right? But the Apostle Paul says, for I am conscious of nothing against himself. Now, he's not saying that he doesn't sin because he says in Romans that that which he wants to do, he doesn't do. And the things he doesn't want to do, he does. So he is a sinner. But what he's saying is in regards to his officership, his steward of the church of the mysteries of Christ, he has been faithful. And if you go to Acts 20, you'll see him saying that he never stopped warning them day and night with tears. He never held back any truth that God had to give them. So he says, my conscience, I have nothing against myself. And yet, I'm not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. Now, that's a beautiful statement. Isn't that beautiful? That's what you want in your leaders. Don't think because you're Protestant that you're avoiding hierarchy. Don't think that because you're Protestant, you don't have this and that man that you look up to and you use him to raise yourself. Don't think because you're Protestant you've avoided having unfaithful stewards. What you want to do is examine what I preach by the word of God, go home and think about it and read the word and pray. And then judge me. You should judge me. But I'm sorry, when you judge me, I will listen to you. And if you rebuke me, And if the elders rebuke me, I'll listen to you. But ultimately, what I'm concerned about is God, the day of the Lord, God's day, not your day. I'll end with this. The reason that churches are led by women with a male figurehead is that when men begin to judge you, they are capable of killing you. Do you understand? In other words, if you as a pastor go for the men, either it'll be a victory or it will be a defeat. They will either love you or they will hate you. Do you understand me? They will either submit to you or they will what? They will kill you. It's in the nature of man. And what will women do? Women will protect the relationship. And this is one more reason why you do not want women in authority over you as a man. This is why you want a church with real men who will admonish and rebuke you and correct you as elders. Real men who will stand up to the pastor. You want the fatherhood of God reflected in every position where you submit to authority as a man. Okay? And so, judge the men, but follow men who recognize that it is God who has the final say. We'll come back to this next. Let's pray.